and we are at paragraph 45, which is Messiah's authority over defilement. So that's where we are on the outline. What's that? I think they're working on it. I think so. Test? Yeah, it's on. Okay. So, all right, I'll repeat that. In the outline, we are on Roman numeral B, which is the authentication of the king. And we're under, or Roman numeral 2, the authentication of the king. Capital B, the authority of the king, which is on page 4 of the outline. And we are down at number 9, paragraph 45, Messiah's authority over defilement. In our harmony, we're on page 36. And in the gospel accounts, we are looking at Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 8, and Luke chapter 5. So it's a conglomeration of those uh, of those passages. Let me just move this over here one moment. Now, we're not hooked up, so we're not using the overhead. I apologize for that. Um, but I'll follow along. This will be up on the website, so you'll get a chance to get that. But in paragraph 45, we're dealing with the authority of the king with respect to the healing of a leper. And uh, leprosy, or at least this particular miracle of healing of leprosy, is a very special and unique miracle that Messiah is going to perform. It has significance that goes beyond merely providing for the particular need of this uh, individual. In all of Hebrew scripture, and for that matter, even rabbinic records, there is no record of any Jew being healed of leprosy and in being so healed, fulfilling the requirements of the Mosaic law with respect to having experienced healing uh, from leprosy. That is to say, there's no record of any Jew being healed of leprosy after the completion of the law. So, for example, we read of Miriam being healed of, of um, leprosy, but that's before the law was completed and the law was given. We read of Naaman, who was healed of leprosy, but he was a Syrian. And this all factors into the events that unfold recorded in section uh, 45 here. Moses, by the way, expresses in great detail the requirements that an individual was to fulfill when he or she was healed of leprosy. They're found in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Each one of these chapters is over 50 verses. So Moses devotes over 100 verses to this issue of leprosy and what was required to be done when an individual is healed from leprosy. And given that there's no record of any Jew being healed of leprosy, one has to wonder why so much space and time was devoted to the requirements as outlined here in this portion of the Mosaic Law. According to the Mosaic Law, in Leviticus 13 and 14, only the priest had the authority to declare someone a leper. Secondly... Secondly, uh, a leper on the day that he was declared to be a leper had to do certain things right on that day. First of all, 
the law mentions that he was to tear his clothing. So on that moment when he's declared by the high priest, you are a leper, he would tear his clothing. Further, he was then ostracized from Jewish society. He would be uh, forced to live in certain areas with other lepers and was kept out of the mainstream of Jewish life. He had to keep his face covered from the nose down. Further, he was not allowed in the tabernacle or temple compound and thus could not receive the special spiritual benefits of being in the tabernacle or temple services. He had to announce publicly, whenever he did come into the public square, he had to announce uh, publicly, not that he was a leper, but he had to announce unclean and unclean. And no one was permitted uh, to touch him. It is interesting, isn't it? That rather than pronouncing his illness, he had to think of himself as unclean and therefore uh, apart from Jewish society and in Jewish life. Now, if a Jew was healed of leprosy, he had to do a number of things. First of all, he had to go before the priest and he was to proclaim, I once was a leper, but I am now healed of my leprosy. So he'd go before the priest and he would announce that he has been healed. The priest then would offer two birds as an offering to the Lord. One bird was killed. The other bird was then taken and dipped into the blood of the first bird, and then he was released and set free. Following those two offerings, for the next seven days, there was an intensive investigation of the individual and the circumstances around the healing he experienced so as to answer three questions. The first question had to do with, was the person a declared leper at first? Was he truly a leper? And since the priest was the only one permitted to pronounce him as a leper, presumably records were kept of such individuals, and thus when this individual came in and said, I am now healed of leprosy, those records could be, uh, could be checked. If the answer was yes, that the individual was genuinely uh, a leper, then the next step was the leper really had to be examined to make sure that he was was cleaned. And so for seven days, every day, his whole body was carefully inspected. All the hairs on his body would be shaved, even uh, his eyebrows which if you know anyone that's ever been to the United States Naval Academy, one of the requirements for all those that graduate and are accepted into the Navy SEALs or to the, the uh, bomb demolition squad, the DOD guys, uh, those two individuals, when they graduate, they have to shave their, eye, they shave their eyebrows and their, and their head as part of their rite of passage. But for the leper... 
when he was and we we sponsored one such mid that went into the uh demolition thing and he came out came over the house and we said you know you look really weird man like what what happened and he said i don't have any eyebrows i said oh yeah that's what it is it's very strange of course guys that go into those two areas are very strange but in any case uh, for seven days, he was inspected to see if he was truly a leper and that he was truly healed. And if the answer to that was yes, he really was healed, then the third question that was raised was what were the circumstances of the healing that occurred to make sure it was a legitimate healing? And so if all three questions were answered satisfactorily, then on the eighth day, there is a ritual with four different types of offerings, according to Moses' uh, Mosaic Law. There are four offerings that were to be offered. First, there was the trespass offering. Then there was the sin offering. Then there was a burnt offering. And then there was a meal offering. Then they would take the blood of the trespass offering and the sin offering and they would apply it to three parts of the former leper's body. They would take the blood from the trespass and sin offering and they would apply it to the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe. And then the ritual ended with the anointing of oil on the same three parts of the body. Only then could the former leper, first of all, enter completely into Jewish society and further enter into the temple and uh, experience the full spiritual benefits um, of temple or tabernacle worship. And yet, despite all of these particulars, there is no record of any Jewish person having had opportunity to put any of this into effect. So in a sense, the law was just, this part of the law was just never observed. Even rabbinic writings have no record of any lepers being healed. And so as a result of this phenomenon, we might say, the understanding in the first century was that when the Messiah came, he would heal a leper. In fact, leprosy was particularly associated with the special judgment and, and divine disfavor of the Lord. And that's because in the scriptures we find that. For example, King Josiah, when he began to offer incense to idols, was struck with leprosy. And you remember Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, when he lied to Elisha, he was struck with leprosy. So the idea was, since no Jewish person was ever healed of leprosy, since we have no record of the Mosaic Law ever being fulfilled in this regard, since the rabbis never spoke of anyone being so healed, and in, in light of the fact that when the scriptures speak of leprosy, it's only in the context of judgment, the rabbis felt or understood that those that had leprosy, were struck with some divine judgment. And no Jew would be healed of leprosy until the Messiah would come. 
Now, in the New Testament, there are certain miracles that are performed and that are written about. And they fall under two different kinds of of uh, uh, two different kinds of categories. There were special messianic miracles, which were designed to create a stir in the Jewish population and the Jewish community to consider whether or not the individual performing these miracles was or was not truly the Messiah. And then there were certain miracles that would be performed that were miracles empowered by the Holy Spirit for the benefit, say, of individuals. There are three kinds of miracles that occur in the life of Messiah that fall under the category of special messianic miracles that were designed to particularly focus on the messianic claims of Yeshua or the messianic claims of the individual performing those miracles. So, for, for example, one such uh, miracle, as we're going to see here, was the healing from leprosy. So individuals could be empowered by the Spirit of God to perform miracles, but then the rabbi said there were certain miracles that the Messiah would perform that would substantiate his claims to being the Savior and being the one we've been waiting for. One, ki- one of those three miracles is the healing of the man with leprosy that we're going to see here in a moment. Another one of those miracles are the miracles of resurrection, such as the resurrection of Lazarus or Yeshua's own resurrection. Messiah had said in John chapter 2, destroy this body and in three days I will raise it up. That was very unique. It wasn't just raising someone from the dead, but a unique miracle that authenticated the claims of the Messiah. And a third miracle that the Messiah and the rabbis understood that the Messiah was particularly to perform to authenticate his claims was that of healing one who was mute due to uh, the effects or the impact of a demon uh, on him. We'll see all three of these miracles manifested by Messiah during the course of the study of the life uh, of Messiah from a Jewish perspective. So anyone who claimed in light of this Anyone who claimed to heal a leper was, in effect, claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. So in this account, notice in Mark's account, it says, There came to Yeshua, verse 40, a leper, and kneeled down to him and said, If you will, thou can make me clean. Notice in Matthew's account, verse 2, it said, And behold, there came to him a leper and worshipped him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. But Luke's account is a little more detailed. Luke, being a doctor, probably paid particular attention to this man's condition because he says, it came to pass while he was in one of the cities, behold, a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Yeshua, he fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So it's interesting that Luke defines him as being full of leprosy. That is to say, his leprosy was fully developed. In other words, it would not be much longer for the leper, for the leprosy to take this man's life. 
And notice also that when he comes in Matthew's account, he records that he worshipped him. And uh, that's a, a very telling statement because here Matthew is recognizing, and this individual is recognizing that Messiah is not just a man, not just a prophet, but he goes beyond being that and is worthy of worship. Further, Messiah himself is acknowledging and receiving the worship. And thus, unless he is more than just a prophet, more than a good person, more than a man, he would actually then be sinning to accept the worship of this individual because no one should be worshipped unless it is God, unless they are God. So the fact that Messiah here accepts worship goes beyond merely a messianic statement but now he's making a statement about his character and identification with God himself. Well, I'm not, we don't know. At least, you know, I'm not sure. Just The others just say he bowed down. But Matthew's statement, not just merely bowing down, but however he saw it at the time, reflected on it afterwards, or spoke to the man. We don't know the basis for his information, but he does say he's worshiping him. Unless Jesus is God, absolutely. And the other thing is, uh, it may be that he wasn't doing, you know, worship is a funny thing. Um, it says he, they, all three say they bowed down. Now, do they just bow down as one might prostrate oneself, as you suggest, before a dignitary? But in Matthew's account, he doesn't just say that. He says he was worshiping him. So we don't know if it's something Matthew saw that separated his action from merely a bow, or was it something he investigated further by inquiring of the individual? So we don't know how it is he knows this, but that's what he records. Yeah, well, and we see that often, don't we? You know, in Scripture, that's even <clears throat> some of the Romans will come and acknowledge and express faith, faith the Syrophoenician woman, uh, and Yeshua will say, uh, you know, I found more faith here than in all of Israel. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and stated, yeah. No, not at this juncture. Yeah, or it goes up and down, right? Because Peter does say, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You know, and so he does a good thing there, but then it's a little after he sort of forgot what he said. What's that? Right. But that's interesting that Matthew records this of this man. So he certainly sees more in Yeshua than what the others are seeing at this particular point. But just to point out some of these uh, some of these issues. Now, also notice that when the leper comes to him, in all three accounts, he doesn't ask Yeshua to make him well. He asks him to make him clean. So if you look at Mark, if you will, thou can make me clean. Matthew's account says, if you will, you can make me clean. Luke's account in verse 12 says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
So there's this continued focus and emphasis on the leper status of this man. And further, Luke point, they, they all point this out as well, that Yeshua in healing him touches him. So if you look, for example, in Matthew's account, in verse 41, it says, Being moved with compassion, he stretched forth his hand and touched him. In Matthew, Mark's account, it says, He stretched forth his hand and touched him. And in Luke's account, he stretched forth his hand and touched him. So all three are taken back by how Yeshua is relating to this leper. The uh, use of the word clean, the um, man in, in this instance coming and saying, if you will, you can make me clean. Uh, Yeshua showing compassion, whereas he was ostracized from the Jewish community. Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, is showing compassion, so, showing grace. And then he even extends his hand to touch him. Think about this. From the time he was declared a leper, he was never touched. Never touched by someone else. And now, for the first time, Yeshua will stretch out, someone will stretch out his hand and touch this man. What's also interesting is Yeshua does not need to touch him in order to heal him. Because earlier he had healed the nobleman's son from a distance. And simply he said, go your way, your son is made well. He could have said the same thing here. But he's certainly focusing uh, and drawing our attention to the leper status. Because he's going to heal him and in so doing, making a statement. He's not just being kind to this man, although he is, for Mark tells us, he showed him compassion. But he's also using this opportunity to make a claim that goes beyond the uh, small circles, but now it's going to be a public statement in which Yeshua is now going to start drawing attention to himself for the purpose of manifesting himself as Israel's, uh, Israel, Israel's Messiah. Now, notice what he tells the man. He tells them three things. You see this, first of all, in Luke's account, in chapter 5. He tells them, first of all, to tell no man. That's because he wants them to tell the high priest. In other words, the high priest, as you remember in the Leviticus law, is the one person who can only declare him a leper. He's the one person that can now declare him to no longer be a leper. So he wants the statement to come from the high priest. So tell no one, but of course he's got to go uh, to the priest. Second thing he tells him to do is to show himself to the priest. You see this in verse 14. Tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest. Well, by the way, Mark says the same thing. He says, see that you say nothing to any man, verse 44. Go your way, show yourself to the priest. And the third thing he tells him, in showing himself to the priest, he then says, do everything according to the Mosaic law. He says that in, in verse 44 of Mark's. Offer for your cleansing the things which Moses commanded. In fact, in uh, Luke, it says the same thing. Offer for thy, for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded. And Matthew records the same thing. Tell no one, show yourself to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto you. So Yeshua is very clear. He wants this to be sort of an in-house matter. He's not just healing this man to 
ease his discomfort because there's plenty of lepers. But he's healing this man with the express command to go to the priest, offer the offering, and have the declaration made by him. Notice this other statement that he makes. When asked why, he says, I want you to be a testimony unto them. The them, of course, are the Jewish religious leaders. This is the same thing said in Matthew chapter 8. For a testimony unto them. See, this is Yeshua wants to utilize the healing of the leper to make a statement to the religious leaders. And then he says in verse 14 of Luke's account, for a testimony unto them. Now, unfortunately, in verse 45 of Mark's account, the man goes out and began to publish much and to spread it abroad because he cannot believe that he has been so healed. And the the testimony has circulated so widely that it says that Yeshua cannot move openly into the city because too many now are thronging to see him. So in verse 16, he withdrew himself into the deserts and there he was able to connect with his father and to reflect uh, and, and to pray. Praying, no doubt, about the next step and stages he is to take as his public manifestation of himself as Messiah begins uh, to, uh, to unfold. Mark, uh, by, in Mark's account where he says he no more could o- walk openly, his ministry, Yeshua's ministry, is beginning to create a lot more tension. And so Yeshua has to be a little bit more careful where he goes and what he does. And so in Luke's account, he begins to contemplate what will happen next and how he will continue to manifest his messiahship leading up to his suffering and his death. In paragraph 46, so keep this in mind, this is like the first Jewish man that's being healed of leprosy and observing the commandments of Moses. So it's almost as if those commandments of Moses with respect to the healing of a leper in verses 13 and 14, chapters 13 and 14, they're almost like a messianic prophecy. They're commandments, but if no one ever obeys them, then they're really more than merely commandments. They now become signposts pointing to who the Messiah is. As a signpost, they're in in effect a messianic prophecy. It's almost like saying the one that finally fulfills this passage and observes it is one who is healed by the Messiah and thus the passage then is a prophecy or foreshadowing or for uh, a looking forward to the Messiah when, uh, when he would come. Now paragraph 46, Messiah not only demonstrates his authority over uh, illness or over defilement, He then shows his authority over sin. If you look at Mark's account in chapter 2, paragraph 46, in verse 1 it says, And when he entered into Capernaum after some days, it was noise that he was in the house. Now it's very important that we take into consideration the location where Yeshua is. He's now in uh, Capernaum. Capernaum 
is about a three days journey from Jerusalem, some 20 miles difference or so. But in Luke 17, it says, And it came to pass on one of those days that he was teaching, and there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out, which had come out from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And so Luke's account, he tells us that all these spiritual leaders have come up to, to Capernaum. The question is, why are they all up there? It says it came to pass that the Pharisees, doctors of the law, sitting by, which were come out of every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and they all come to see him. Why? And the reason why they've come to see him is because this is their response to the healing of the leper in the previous chapter or the previous section. They've now seen someone observe this commandment. And Yeshua specifically told this man to show himself to the priest so that the priest, so that it would be a testimony to the priest. So the Jewish leadership now have observed this man for those seven days. And they've seen, yes, he's on record. He truly was one who we've declared a leper. And yes, he truly is healed. And now they, when they ask him, what are the circumstances around which you were healed? Now they find out that it was Yeshua of Nazareth who stretched forth his hand and touched him and made him clean. And so now all these religious leaders are coming to observe Yeshua's ministry. And what they want to see is if, in fact, his ministry is significant or not. This is just like John the Baptist. Remember, as he started his ministry, they sent out some of the Jewish religious leaders to see what John was up to. And when they came, John had condemned them and had attacked them. They go back to Jerusalem and they report this ministry of John is significant. We've got to keep our eyes on it. And eventually they combat him and that uh, conflict eventually will lead to his death. And we said that one of the themes is what happens to the herald will happen to the king. And so in the same way that John conducts his ministry, something significant is done. In the case of John, he's baptizing Jews. We talked about that already. And he announced the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the Messiah is ready to appear. When they go back and report that, that is those who are observing John, the uh, observation committee, now they come back to the Sanhedrin and they say there is something significant afoot and they send investigators out to see if John's what John is is doing and what's going on similarly now they're going to send an investigative party to observe what Yeshua is doing during the observation stage they don't say anything they just observe when they send out the investigative party then they will begin to confront uh, Yeshua with respect to what he's doing, and they'll begin uh, to question him. So this is a response. The reason why they're coming out is a response to what Yeshua has already done. So the event there in the, in the first stage of inquiry into the nature of, the, of Yeshua, so they are observing him. And usually a small delegation would be sent. But here, according to Luke's account, they have not responded in that way, 
but rather there is a large number of observers who are coming to see what has happened and to uh, further inquire into the miracle that they have uh, observed. So this is the stage of, inve of investigation. Now, in Luke's account, as or in, in these accounts, what tra what transpires here, taking a look at Luke as they come out, what unfolds is there as Yeshua is teaching that there is a man who is paralyzed. Luke five verse eighteen. In Matthew's account, Matthew chapter nine verse two, they said, "Behold, there was a, a man that was brought to him who was sick of the palsy, could not walk." And in verse 3, there are these friends of this man who came, and they brought to Yeshua a man who was sick. When they could not come, in, come near to Yeshua because of the crowd, they decide to come up with another way of getting their friend into, Jesus's, into Yeshua's proximity so that he could experience this healing. We saw in Luke 5 that you've got all these observers all these officials who've come up, they've crowded into this room where Yeshua is teaching, and they're not letting anyone in. So these guys can't get their friend who is on a pallet, on some kind of bedding, and they can't carry him in and get through. So instead, they decide to go up onto the roof. When they go up on the roof, they start tearing off the tile on the roof. In Mark's account, it says that they uncovered their roof the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed where on the, the sick, the one who was sick of the palsy had lay. In other words, they're tearing up this guy's roof because they're not going to say, take no for an answer. Now it is true that some of these roofs in Israel in those days were they had roofs that were removable during the summer weather, so that or hot weather, so that they could let out some of the heat. But these holes that were uh, oftentimes in the roof were not big enough for a man in a pallet that they're going to let down right before him. So they're tearing apart this guy's house. And I don't know what they thought, of, what the owner thought of it, but they open up the roof and they begin to let him down. And Yeshua saw their faith. So interesting, in light of this leper who comes and worships Yeshua, these guys knew that Yeshua could heal them, heal him with no problem. They had great faith, so much so, nothing was going to keep them from getting their friend into Yeshua's proximity. So they're tearing up the guy's house, tearing up his roof. And what's interesting is that when the man is presented before Yeshua, he doesn't say, be healed. He doesn't say, get up and walk. He simply says, your sins are forgiven. What's also interesting about this is that this is in the passive voice in the Greek text. In the Hebrew text, the only time the passive voice is used is used in Leviticus chapters 4, and five, uh, four 5, and 6. And those passages are passages that deal with the offering of sacrifices that lead to the atonement of sin. So obviously Yeshua is making a connection between the forgiveness of sins and the atonement 
by means of sacrifices that could provide for the forgiveness of sins and his own ability to actually forgive sins with respect to salvation. We all can forgive sins when someone has wronged us. We can say, hey, I forgive you for this. But that's not what's going on here. He's forgiving this man's sin of all kinds, not sins against him. He hasn't done anything against his Shia to forgive. So how can he say to this man, your sins are forgiven when he's not been offended by anything this man has done? He's talking about forgiving of his sins in a salvation context and in a salvation manner. So in other words, by using the passive voice as it is used in Leviticus, which there it is used by God, Yeshua is in effect speaking as God when he says your sins are forgiven. So we have two of these episodes side by side. The leper worshiping the Messiah and him accepting that worship and now speaking in the passive voice with respect to the forgiving of sins, which is only done by God in Leviticus chapters 4 through 6. And so these episodes are saying more than just healing individuals that are in need of healing. So the healing becomes a platform for Yeshua to demonstrate his Messiahship and even to go a step further to proclaim his deity. As a result, um, notice how the people respond. In Luke's passage, in verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees who observed in part, they say, who is this that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they understood exactly what Yeshua was doing. And they're right about that. Only God can save from sins. So they were stating something that was true. Notice also that um, in, in this passage that we read, oh, um, we read that they do not question him, but they begin to reason within themselves. They begin to reflect on what is happening, which is again a reflection of the fact that they're merely observing. If you look at Mark's account in verse 6, it says, those that were sitting there were reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man thus speak? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but one, even God? They never question him. They're only listening because it's the observing party uh, that comes out here. Um, if you look at Matthew's account, he says the same thing in verse 3. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. So this whole notion of an observing party leading to an investigating party is reflected right in the text if we understand the uh, stages that the Jewish leadership in the first century went through in investigating these kinds of matters. So Yeshua then, when they are reasoning in their hearts and they're saying, who alone but God can forgive sins, Yeshua then begins to respond with a question. And there are two ways in which Jewish teaching uh, was was uh, conveyed or was conducted. One was you went from the known to the unknown. And in an earlier passage, we saw Yeshua utilizing uh, that method. Here he uses a second message, which is to ask 
a question. So in Mark verse 9, he asks this question. Which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, the man who's lying there? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk. And the easier is to say, your sins are forgiven. And the reason why that's the easier is because it cannot be proven whether or not one's sins are forgiven when you make the statement, your sins are forgiven. So it's easy for me to say, for example, to you all, you know, um, your standing before God is perfect and fine and all your sins are forgiven. If anyone walked in there, I could say that statement. And no one could say whether or not that's true or not because you can't appeal to the uh, heavenly court. But if I was to say to you, okay, he's paralyzed, he rides up and walks, so that's the hard one. Because if a person doesn't rise up and walk, well then I've been found to be a fraud. And thus, that's the harder statement. So Yeshua is going to prove he can do the easier, say your sins are forgiven, by doing the harder, rise up and walk, and the man walking. So he tells the man, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, arise, take up your bed, and walk. And when he takes up his bed and walk, it demonstrates that when he says, your sins are forgiven... He also has the power to forgive his sins. And it says in Mark's account, in verse 12, and he arose and immediately, straightway. It wasn't a gradual, you know, it was just like, boom, all of a sudden, he could walk. Um, he didn't have to relearn, redo the muscles and the t sinews and all that. He just immediately took up his bed and went forth before them all inasmuch that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying we never saw it in this fashion. Mark's, Matthew's account says when the multitude saw it, they were afraid and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And in verse 26 of Luke's account, it says amazement took hold of all. They glorified God and they were filled with fear, saying we have seen strange things today. Because they not only saw a man walk, but they also heard that a man's sins were completely forgiven. Now these leaders are going to go back to the Sanhedrin. And they're going to say, this is quite significant. We now need to get an investigative party engaged. Paragraphs 47 through 60 are now the investigative party trailing Yeshua wherever he goes. And then throwing questions and challenges out of him. At this point, they didn't because they're only observing. From now on, through section 60, they will because now they're going to investigate him. When they investigate him, they're going to conclude that something needs to be done with him because he is going to take power away from us and the people will then go after him and whatever ramifications of that that might have. So in paragraph 47, we have... Uh, Yeshua's authority over men. And we're going to uh, come through this section and then we're going to uh, conclude. And so in paragraph 47 is the beginning of the second stage 
of the Sanhedrin's connection with Yeshua, moving from observing to investigating. And this investigative stage comes in the context of the calling of Yeshua's seventh disciple, who is Matthew. If you look at Mark's account, Matthew's name was Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew records this event, and he's writing about himself, as simply in the third person. He says he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the place of toll. I think it's an expression of his own humility. It's not unlike Mark's account, because Mark's account is understood to actually be Peter's testimony. John Mark was not present in any of these events, but uh, many understand this to be Peter's account given to Mark that he's sharing. And later when we get to the end, we'll see an account of a young man who is in the Garden of Gethsemane who runs when all of the mayhem explodes and his robe is grabbed and uh, he runs away naked without his robe. And that's probably a reference to John Mark giving a little personal testimony that while I may not have been here in all these events, I was in one of those events. So Matthew writes of himself in the third person. In Luke chapter 5, we're told that a publican named Levi was sitting at the place of toll. In each instance, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, Yeshua simply says to him, follow me, and Matthew follows him. Now, Matthew was a tax collector or a publican. And he, when Yeshua says to him, follow me, that's one of Yeshua's words in, that he uses or phrases in which he calls one to discipleship. Earlier, he said to Peter and John, Andrew, um, come and see. Here's another kind of expression of discipleship where he says, follow me. He's not just saying, hey, look, I want to show you around, right? He's saying, follow me. That is to say, be one of my disciples. And Matthew leaves his post and follows Yeshua immediately. Now, there were two kinds of of tax collectors uh, in Israel. There was the tax collector that collected like income tax. And then there was the customs tax collector that stood at various posts. And as people moved their goods from one place to another, they would be taxed for them. Now, they were considered to be the worst kind. Because those guys that were on at various posts along the way, if you came and you had certain goods and it cost you 10 shekels or whatever the currency was called, they're going to charge you 15. Because the Romans didn't care what the publicans taxed the fellow, their fellow Jews. They just wanted to make sure they got their cut. But the tax collectors, the way that they got wealthy was to overcharge. So they were particularly despised by the people, and particularly those that were uh, custom tax collectors as opposed to income tax uh, collectors, because they're always out there and they're always, you know, gaining money from goods that are being moved from one place to the other. They were so despised that the rabbis made all kinds of regulations and rulings about what publicans were permitted to do and what individuals were permitted to do with those publicans. So it was permitted 
that if you could sneak your goods through the toll booth in such a way as not to be found, that was a good thing, according to the rabbis. That was a right thing. You ought to try to get your stuff through without, you know, being taxed for them. It was a bad thing, in other words, if you just told the truth and said, look, I got all this stuff. No, you, to the publicans, you were to get your stuff across without, um, without being taxed by them, encouraging their sin. And they were also not permitted to be engaged in public life. I mean, they, you may have broken that rule, but you were permitted not to engage them in public life. And the only ones that were permitted to were prostitutes. And they oftentimes are referred to by the euphemism sinners. So when you read publicans and sinners, they're talking about tax collectors and prostitutes because they're the only ones that, according to the rabbinic laws, were permitted to hang out together. And uh, so now when Yeshua is called, he immediately stops doing his tax collecting and he leaves. Now that is not something that was looked kindly upon uh, by uh, the Romans. That if you wanted to stop being a, a tax collector, you had to find somebody to take your place before you could step down from it. But Matthew doesn't do that. It just says, follow me. And it says in Ma Mark's account, and he arose and followed him. In Matthew's account, it says the same thing. He arose and followed him. But Luke says in verse 28, he forsook all and rose and followed him. So he just didn't care what the Romans thought. And another, t another way to look at it is he saw the authority of Yeshua was greater than the authority of the Romans. And that's really saying something because he's standing up against the most powerful empire in the world or at least in the, that part of the world at that time. This also reminds me of that passage with uh, Peter that we saw earlier. That when Yeshua tells them to take his nets, throw them off on the other side, they get all this fish. When he comes in, it says, Peter forsook all. He gave up all his livelihood and followed the Messiah. Matthew is doing the same thing. Now, as a result of this, Matthew throws, a, and this, by the way, is the point at which he becomes born again. He is following the Messiah. He's now become uh, a man of God and a man of the Messiah. So he throws himself a birthday party for his new, in effect, he's celebrating his new found life. Because it says in Luke's account, and Levi made him, he made a feast for himself, celebrating the experience of salvation that he just, that he just received. And so he made a feast for him in his house. And look what Luke says. And there was a great multitude of publicans. But Luke is very kind. He says, and others that were sitting at meet, meet with him. But Matthew, who gives us his account, he says, and it came to pass as he sat at meat in the house. He doesn't want to take credit that he's throwing a party for himself and for others. He just says he's sitting at this house. Again, another thing of humility, right? And he says, there were many publicans and sinners. And they sat down with Yeshua and his disciples. Mark says the same thing. And many publicans and sinners. Now think about this. Here are all these tax collectors and all these prostitutes at this party to celebrate Matthew's new birth. And Yeshua is there with his disciples. 
Is that not scandalous? What I mean, what would happen if you, you know, were at the bar with all of these prostitutes and thieves? And word gets out of Beth Ariel. Hey, you know, I saw uh, I saw uh, Clint down at, you know. Well, you did. But think about it. What kind of of rumors would start circulating? And here's the Messiah of Israel. And it says, and Yeshua and his disciples. You can imagine what they're thinking, you know. Where is he taking us? The other thing is kind of interesting is Matthew's just calling his friends. He's the only people he could have connected with. He wasn't allowed to connect with others, so he's calling them all in. And he's celebrating. I think it's so neat that, that the Lord is comfortable in all of these different circumstances. You can go into the synagogue, be handed the scroll of the law, and read it publicly and teach it, you know, uh, in a professional, excellent, you know, motivational, uh, as a great teacher to the body. He can be with uh, people that are extremely needy paralytic, a leper, and he can show compassion. He can be gracious to people who are sick. You know, it's, uh, I don't know if you ever, ever have done this on a regular basis, but as a uh, person in ministry, I remember those early times when you go into hospitals and nursing homes. It can be the most stressful, tiring uh, experience, you know. Uh, now, over time, it's not so much like that for me. But the first time, it was like really kind of uh, stressful going in and all you see are sick people and you don't know where you're going you get these strange smells and then when you come and you sit down there's someone who's really sick what do you say you know how you doing well look at me you know and you say and you, you try to comfort them or whatever it isn't easy but over time you know God teaches you trains you and enables you to be there and but Yeshua is comfortable in that environment He's comfortable in the synagogue environment. He's comfortable with the uh, professors of the law and the scribes and sitting down and, you know, and knocking brains against each other, thinking about uh, deep theological, philosophical truths. And he's comfortable with prostitutes and tax collectors. You know, I mean, he can just be in all these places. And he maintains his holiness as the God of the universe. He maintains his messiahship, and yet he can connect with these people. You know, it's uh, you know, it's Luke said earlier that uh, when he was talking about his growing up, he said he grew in stature and in favor with God and man. He could grow socially, and he was able to manifest social graces and uh, and move in all these different all these different spheres. So in Mark 16, when he's there, and now the investigative party is observing what Yeshua is doing. Now they've moved from merely observing to now they're going to investigate. Is his movement significant and what's going on? In verse 16, it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they're following him around. They weren't necessarily invited, and who knows if they actually walked in. But it says, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and the publicans and his disciples also, he, and they said he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners. 
you know. Messiah's not supposed to do that. In Matthew's account, it says when the Pharisees saw it, they went to the disciples. They go to the weak link. You know, they're trying to draw them away from him. And they say, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? And they probably say, man, you got me. I have no idea. I'm just here. I'm here to follow him and enjoy the food, you know, and the company. maybe. And then in verse in verse 30 of Luke's account, it says when the, the scribes and Pharisees, they murmured against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? So in Matthew's account, Yeshua stands up. I think that's really cool, too. He takes initiative. He doesn't just sit there and say, hey, come on, John, tell them what we're doing here, you know, or James. But rather, he comes to their defense. And he, he heard it. He said, they that are whole. He tells them three things, right? He says, first of all, the sick are the ones that need the physician. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. So his first point is, the sick need a physician. Should I not heal them? Secondly, he says, but go and learn what this means, as he quotes from Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so what he means to say is, you Pharisees and scribes, you Jewish religious leaders of that day, you are characterized by much sacrifice, but you're not characterized by much mercy. Or to put it another way, you're characterized by much sacrifice, but you lack mercy. What does he mean? He means you are characterized by external manifestations of the law and rabbinic interpretation of the law. You know, you have the outward show, the sacrifices are placed on the altar, but you lack the internal integrity and the mercy and compassion that ought to go along with that. Because the Lord desires mercy and compassion more than he desires the external uh, compliance with the rituals of the law. In other words, observing the rituals of the law got you nowhere. It only... It only meant you observed the rituals of the law. It did not mean you obeyed the law. To obey the law, it meant your heart had to be right with God. And when your heart was right with God, you would be compassionate and merciful. Which means, if you were compassionate and merciful and failed to observe the externals of the law, you were okay in God's eyes. But if you observe the externals of the law without mercy and compassion, you fail to observe the law. And that is so typical of, of God, isn't it? It's always backwards. So we always think, if we go to synagogue every, every Shabbat, if we always light the candles, always, I'm doing my duty, and I'm okay with God. And God says, you may, doing, you may doing a duty, but you're not okay with me. On the other hand, you could walk with God, truly love him, truly know him, be merciful and kind to others, love your neighbor as yourself, and fail in some respects with regard to the law. And the Lord says, there's a man after my own heart, like David. Now, and then we'll get your thought. Um, this is so critical an idea, I think, for we who are involved in the Messianic movement and in the Messianic congregation. Because what oftentimes happens in the Messianic congregation is 
because we want to connect with the Jewish community, we want to connect with our uh, Jewish people if we're Jewish or the Jewish people if we're not Jewish. And we can go too far, not in terms of what we do. We're free to do as much or as little as we want, but we can go too far in terms of what it is that is pleasing to God ultimately. And so we need to be on, particularly on guard. All, all uh, believers need to be on guard. They all have certain kinds of traditions, laws, and things of that sort. But in our context, it's a particularly um, uh, ish, uh, a particular needy issue that we have to be alert to. Because there are those who say, hey, if you're not worshiping on Saturday, man, you know, like, I don't get it. You know, what's wrong with you? And there's a lot of things wrong with me and us, you know. So we could talk about that sometime. But it, it's, you know, worshiping on Sunday or Saturday is not really the issue. You know, it's just all I'm trying to say. Well, he's 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 talking about their expression of compassion and mercy versus their compliance with the externals of the Mosaic law. So I don't know if he has Gentiles in mind here in this particular context, but what he does, what he is concerned about is the scribes and Pharisees are looking at these publicans and, and sinners and they're saying, how could Messiah connect with these people when they are such, they're living lives that are so out of sync with God's character. And what Messiah, what Messiah is pointing out is these are the people that need healing. They're sick. So in order to do that, a physician has to come into their midst. And so this is where you ought to be, is what he's saying to them. You ought to be here bringing God's grace and mercy to them that uh, it might work on their lives to heal them. Messiah is not condoning them as publicans. Or as sinners. He's not condoning their actions. He's saying they are sick. Those are sick. Those are manifestations of a disease. And that manifestation of that disease is sin. So they need to be healed of that. And But by cloistering them away from God. You are the bearers of God's presence. And you're cloistering them away from you. You're not bringing healing to them. You're just allowing them to continue in their sin. So you're, con- you're, you're maintaining the externals, but your heart is not interested in people, really, because if they were, you'd be reaching out to them. Now, some of those people may not want to be reached out to, but that's, that's the exception, not the rule. You know, He's talking about the general attitude toward those that are lost. And rather than rejoicing in their sin and keeping them far from you, He's saying you ought to have to show compassion and mercy, and therefore we ought to be mingling with them because they are individuals who are in need of God's grace. And they're not extending it. They're hoarding it for themselves. And I guess in hoarding it for yourself, perhaps you're not experiencing it yourself either. But then the third thing he says um, is, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repent. 
So, in other words, the religious leaders of his day were self-righteous. He knows his words will fall on deaf ears there. There may be some exceptions, such as Nicodemus. He was an exception. But Nicodemus understood his lostness as well, despite his um, conviction as a Pharisee and as a uh, teacher in Israel and ruler in Israel. There's none righteous. Well, I think what he means by righteous here is the religious. So the religious observers, you know, those that are um, thinking that things are okay because they are manifesting the external trappings of their religious convictions. I think, and, and I think it's that may very well be true because, you know, if you put it in the context of the entirety of God's word, you you hear the prophets a scathing denunciation of the religious leaders of their day that refused to listen to their voice, you know, so that woe to the shepherds that scatter the sheep, you know, is Jeremiah's word. I suppose that's po- that's possible, you know. Well, I just see it sort of in connection with what the prophets are uh, doing in the in the Old Testament, where they have scathing denunciations for the Jewish leaders of their day and um, who would would not submit to the words of the prophets, but who did submit to them in the common people that um, were oftentimes ostracized by the religious leaders of their day. This is just a continuation of that same story. You know. But um, so this paragraph, as he now for the first time interacts with the religious leaders of his day and challenges them and is challenged by them, this paragraph now helps to set the, set the stage for what happens from here on out through paragraph 60 where you've got the continued investigation uh, which takes us through uh, Luke 7. What happened in Luke 60, paragraph 60, what happens in Matthew 12 is where Yeshua heals the uh, man who's both uh, mute and blind as a result of uh, demonic forces. And that is the critical parting of the ways, you might say, where in that chapter, Matthew 12, you have the national rejection of Yeshua as the Messiah by the Jewish leaders representing uh, the nation of Israel. So 47 through 60 is now this investigation of him. It culminates in chapter in paragraph 60 with Matthew 12, and I, and I think that was uh, Mark, uh, Matthew 12 and uh, Mark 3. It culminates with the national rejection of Israel as the Messiah.
and then Yeshua's ministry is no longer a ministry in which he is publicly manifesting himself as the Messiah because he's now been rejected as such. But rather, he's going to perform miracles for personal needs. And there you'll read over and over again, don't tell anyone about these miracles that I'm doing because they're not for the purpose of authenticating my claims, for my claims have now been rejected. And now he sets his face toward uh, going to the cross to suffer for our sin and to provide us with salvation and atonement. Well, are there any other questions or thoughts that you might like to share? I'm not sure what time it is. It's nine. Okay. All right. So let's pray. And if uh, there are, I'm, I'm going to stick around for a little bit more, and we can uh, talk a little bit if you want. But if you need to leave, you can take off too. So, Father, we thank you for this uh, evening. It's great to sing words of praise to you, and it's also wonderful to peruse your word and uh, to look at these uh, unique facets of Yeshua's life as we uh, seek to learn about him from a Jewish perspective. So thank you for... Uh, what we have learned this night. And then, Father, may we uh, learn from what we have read as well. May we reach out to the lost in effective and powerful ways. May our hearts break for those around us who do not know you. And may we show compassion, mercy, and grace like Yeshua did to those around in his day, to those around him. May we do the same in our own time and in our own communities. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.